0: you're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey guys, welcome. Grab a seat. Hope you are all doing well. Yeah, we're, we're going to just jump into it. Like Matt mentioned, um, just a few weeks ago, like the beginning of the new year, we kicked off this series um, through what is most commonly called, like, the Ten Commandments. And here's what we've discovered already, that um, it's 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 this interesting approach. Like, to, to even to, like, call it um, the Ten Commandments, we've acknowledged, like, that's not even, like, what these people would have called it. So, so we've kind of been lifting um, it out of kind of, like, maybe some of our misconceptions, which is important, because really the proper wording for it, the, the real translation would be, the 10 words, right? Or instructions. And these are these first words, like this is why this is so important. These are the first words that God speaks to this newly formed people and nation, a people of promise. And we spent the first two weeks like just clarifying a few of these things. And there's a lot more like Matt's kind of indicating like, man, we could nerd out for like 10 weeks on just all the ways that we get this wrong and like how we can lift it out of that. But we got to keep pushing ahead. I think we've actually got you to the point where you're like, just give us the rules, right? Like it's been two weeks of like, we haven't even touched them, but now we're getting there today and we want to really understand them because it's so easy to misunderstand the content and the context of what these are like if we just treat them like some universal code of ethics or morals that is given to like all of humanity that they are to adhere by we've dislocated them from the story that's not what this is for or if we read them as like a list of just 10 requirements handed down from like a divine dictator that only demands our perfection in our efforts to try to live out all 10 of them, that's a misuse of them. Or maybe we treat them like a scoreboard, right? Against which everything that we do will be held up and judged. And if we just live them out perfectly, we can obtain our own eternal security, but that's not what they are. Um, And I think that hopefully this is good news for you this morning, that as we put them in their proper context, we see God's intention for his people. As we read them, we have to always keep in mind that as God gave them, he gave these very specific instructions, but he gave them at a specific time and a specific location to a very specific people in the midst of their story. And then once we put them back into that context, then we can actually see what they're for, right? We see that they are really this beautiful invitation from God to live life in a very particular way, an invitation to rip out any vestiges of Egypt and empire from their hearts and now live as the people of Yahweh. It's a loving invitation from a God. This is covenant language. This is how God establishes relationship, and we have to see how love is what permeates all of these. If we remove them from a loving context, then we're missing the point. They are then just a list of rules and a list of chores. Like, listen, those of you that have families, I mean, you all probably grew up in some type of family, like... Would you say that your family was defined by chores? Maybe for some of you, right? But most families aren't defined by only chores. That would not be a great family to live in. Like our family has chores, like we make our kids do things, but our family also laughs together and walks together and plays together. Like just over the past couple of days, my wife and I went out for a walk in the woods yesterday, and it was magical. Like, y'all should go out. It's it's amazing out there. Um, so we do things, that, and, and all of that is seated in this loving relationship, and, and our family is not just a list of rules. And so that's not what these are. God's forming a family, but what God wants us to see through these instructions is that they are primarily a loving invitation to enter into relationship with Yahweh through covenant. And they reveal the God of God who is, right? So as we kind of walk through the story, we begin to see God revealing to his people. So let's just jump in. Let's finally get to these changes, right? It changes when I say, like, we're going to get to these invitational instructions. So let me pray one more time, and we'll walk through this. Father, we thank you that as your people we can gather, uh, we can be present with each other, and most importantly, we can be present with you as our God. We bear the name of Yahweh as a people, like as we look to the story of Israel, we can see, God, you moving and working. We see so much of our story as an exodus story now as you've freed all of humanity from the bondage of sin and and the slavery to it, and you've freed us to live lives of righteousness. God, we pray that your word would come alive in our hearts today. In your name we pray, amen. So as we dig into these, one important thing is we've put really what would most commonly be like the first two commandments. We've coupled them together. Um, That's important. We'll get into that. And so you could really look at this. The first commandment just simply is this, only worship Yahweh. Now we're going to elevate that name throughout this series. Like it is important that we recognize that. Um, We'll kind of interchangeably use Yahweh and God, but I want to keep that before, because that is such an important Um, piece to the whole story is that God shows up and and now he he gives his personal name to a people, right? So so only worship Yahweh. And then that second instruction or that second word is to only worship Yahweh in the way of Yahweh. And we're going to unpack that and understand what that means. So the first commandment is about the who of worship. And then the second commandment is about the how of worship. And then when you put them together, you see this picture of only worship Yahweh in the way of Yahweh of Yahweh. And what I'd like to do this morning I'm going to show you these two real simply, like these two instructions and how they find themselves working first and foremost for ancient Israel. Like what are the implications for ancient Israel? Because that's the context. It's a specific people in a specific place, but obviously it fits for us today too. And what's our relationship with these? So I've got these like five statements. Okay. So if you're a note taker, like rarely do I have points, but kind of got some points today. So you can write these down and we're going to look at these five kind of statements about the response and the obedience of what it means to be a people that worship Yahweh. And so these statements become a, a description of obedience to what God is inviting his people to do, which is to worship him and how they are to worship him. So as we obey these first two instructions from God, it's going to look like these five things in our life. So number one is this, We worship Yahweh who has made himself known. Now we've kind of walked through that and the importance of a God showing up as a personal God and giving his name to a people because there was a lot of guesswork before this, right? For the people, they're faced with like this pantheon of gods that they could worship in Egypt and the surrounding areas and then let alone that what was kind of built into the fabric of being an Egyptian was that you were worshiping Pharaoh as a God. So it was just, if anything, it was like hyper confusing because it was like a buffet of gods to choose from, none of which felt personal, none of which felt significant to a people who were enslaved. And so now they've got a God who is their God and he shows up and he speaks his personal name, and he makes himself known. Look at verse 3 again. You shall have no other gods before me. So this commandment simply means this. You cannot have any other god like beside me. And that's not like, hey, don't prop up another god beside me, but like besides me, nothing else can come between us and this relationship. And the most important word in that commandment is the word me. Right? The word me in verse 3 is actually everything to this understanding because whoever this me is, he requires exclusive worship of his people. And of course, verse 2 has already told us who this is. That's why it's so important that we keep most commonly, verse 2 is called like the preamble to the, the, the list of these instructions. But you can't decouple it because then we miss the importance of, of everything that we've talked about in the first couple of weeks. And he says this in verse two, I am Yahweh, which is him revealing his name. And then he says, I am your God, your personal God, right? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the instruction is you shall have no other gods before me. So this is Yahweh making a case to his people of the exclusivity of worship. Like, why is that important? Well, it's important because of who he is and what he's done. Like God's Our worship of God is always to be informed by who he is and what he's done. And we make a response to how he's revealed himself and what he's accomplished in history. And he's saying, because of those things, always remember, never decouple what I'm about to say. Because it's not just these ten laws or these rules or these instructions. Like, we know that God continues to give Moses rules and instructions for his people, for A purpose and God saying don't ever remove those from those two things who I am and how I reveal myself to you and what I've accomplished on your behalf right all of the commandments is that Yahweh is your God and that he has saved you Yahweh your God so in in Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 we see this God being talked about he's the creator of heaven He's the creator of earth, right? It's this amazing thing that, he's, that that the people are now saying, like, this is the God that we are called to worship, right? He's, he's the same God as the reminded, that, that he's the God that came to Abraham in grace in Genesis 12. And he's the God that throughout the book of Exodus up until the point that he has promised to deliver his people and then he made good on that promise by rescuing them. He's reminding and rehearsing to them this is what I've done. This is the God that I am. And, and that's what we find all the way back in chapter 2, right? Just before God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. Remember, God saw the suffering of Israel. He heard the cry of his people. He remembered the covenant that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so out of his great love and out of his faithfulness to his promises, God calls Moses and he reveals his name to Moses. I am who I am. Moses is like, who who am I to worship? I am who I am. And and what he's saying when God reveals his name to Moses, is he's saying, I I will be who I I will be. And, And there's no other way to define me other than in terms of myself. Like that's what God's personal name means. Like there's really no way to define me out of me. Which means if you want to know me, watch what I do. If you want to know me, pay attention to how I make myself known. If you want to know me, look to my mighty acts and works of salvation. And that's what he does. Like we see this over and over again. Yahweh acts in the world. He moves in history and he does it so that you will know that he is Yahweh, your God. So Yahweh reveals himself to be the holy God who saves his people and he he does this like very specifically in the story of Exodus, which we can't remove, through like these amazing signs and wonders, right? He decimates all the gods of Egypt in the plagues. He displays his sovereignty even over the heart of Pharaoh in the story. Yahweh is making a case for who he is, and he's saying, you can't define me outside of me and my, my works and my actions. This is Yahweh your God. This is Yahweh who has rescued you as a people and formed you. Now, worship me. And after after God makes himself known to his people, and, and he makes and he reminds them once again, like what he's accomplished on their behalf, and you'd assume that for the people, like that'd be the easiest commandment of all like as we're reminded only like maybe two or three months after all of these events unfolded of course that's on our mind so of course it should be so easy for them to say like yes like we'll give you that we'll give you that our worship i mean what is israel going to do at this point are they going to go back to egypt and begin to bow down once again to the gods of egypt of course not yahweh made a mockery of them. He proved them to be impotent. He proved them to be non-existent. So obeying the first command means worshiping Yahweh, who has made himself known. The second is this, we worship Yahweh by giving him our total allegiance. So here's where we got to slow down a little bit, like with the meaning of of worship, right? Because of course the word worship, it's not used. Like you look to, to verse three again, and that's not a word that God uses there. He just says, you shall have no other gods before me, but certainly that's like an address of, of worship. It's implied in there. And then in other places throughout the scripture where we see this commandment repeat itself, worship becomes more explicit in it. Like Jesus in Matthew 22, when he says that you are to love the Lord your God with everything that you have exclusively, he's talking about worship. Not having any other gods and loving God with your everything, same thing. It's worship. And we see this a little later in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses repeats the 10 words again, right? And then in chapter 6, he basically gives like this big, like here's the main takeaway from the 10 words. And this is what he says. He, he sums it up in Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is called the Shema, right? Which means to listen. And so to listen to this, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might, right? So Yahweh deserves our exclusive worship. It's an invitation to have nothing between you and God, where there was distance between you and God, where there was sin that was unreconciled between you and God, where there was worship of other idols between you and God. When God shows up, makes his self known, reminds you of what he's done as he has saved all of humanity, he's saying the logical conclusion of that is exclusive worship of me as your God, right? He demands, He requires, but more important that He is lovingly worth our allegiance. Our total allegiance means we love Him with every part of who we are. In other words, there's just simply no room for our worship, which is Yahweh and and like you can fill in the blank with anything, but our total ame- allegiance means that only Yahweh gets all of us because of who he is, because of what he's done. Can you imagine just like showing up and being like, I'm cool, God, to like give you like, I don't know, like 60%. Like I'm a 60% guy, right? Like this is the holy God who has saved you how could you not give him everything yahweh is worthy of our allegiance and that's simple but man so often like in our sin like we fail to honor him with what he deserves and so rather than giving god everything like we give him 60% like 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 most of me worships him but there's a few things there's a few spaces there's a few things that like i kind of still have and i hold on to like what What makes it so disturbing what makes it so easy to be a 60 percenter good people right like why is it like so often does it go unchecked in our heart and in our communities because 60 percenters good church going people often 60 percenters might have solid theology like fine intentions man but but and like like i'm one of them at times like we we break the first commandment because that's not total allegiance, right? Like we actually have a story in the Bible about somebody who's like this. Jesus tells this story about this guy. We're not given his name. We don't know much about him, but what we do know is like, hey, he's a good guy. He's doing good things. He's most likely this like young professional guy. He's apparently like super wealthy and He approaches Jesus as Jesus tells the story, and he's like, hey, rabbi, which is teacher, like, teach me something. Teach me how to do this. Rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Like, how do I figure this out? And Jesus tells him, like, well, keep the commandments. And he's like, well, which ones? And then Jesus, like, in rapid fire succession, he rattles off, like, the last six instructions, ones that we haven't got to yet. And the guy's, like, says back to Jesus, like, I've done that. Like I'm crushing it when it comes to not killing people. I'm good at that, right? What else you got, Jesus? And Jesus says, okay, so like that's about 60% of those things, right? There's 10 of them. You're saying you've never broke six of them. You're a 60% kind of guy. Well, let me ask you this. You're still asking like, what do I do? Well, go and sell everything that you have. Maybe, maybe even better, like give it away to people in need, whatever it is. And then come and follow me. And, like, what happens next is, it's crazy, right? The guy says, Jesus says that the guy, like, is saddened in his heart, right? He, he recognizes that there's something hanging over here that he's just unwilling to give away. He's unwilling to let it unseat in his heart because he worships it, right? Um, he's a 60% kind of guy. He's like, hey, I've kept all of these instructions. I've never treated a fellow image bearer like... And broke these commandments. He's a good guy, but you see, like, in that moment, it's impossible for him to to even follow the first one, right? He, He tried to have other gods before Yahweh, and when Jesus tells him, like, hey, get rid of those things that are coming beside me, he can't do it. And notice what this means. It means that he actually can't follow Jesus in the way that Jesus calls him to follow him. So this story then begins to illustrate Jesus, like he's already taught his disciples, right? You go back to Matthew 6, 24. What does Jesus says? He says, here's the deal. You can't serve two things at once. You can't have two masters. Sixty percenters can't actually follow Jesus because there's no split allegiance to the king and there's no dual citizenship in his kingdom. This is why Jesus would go on to say, like all these like big like very hyperbolic statements about following him and some of them you're like man that's crazy right like like if you're going to follow me hit your moms and pops and you're like like most of us, like when we read that, like what do we instantly go to? But, that, but isn't there a command about how we're supposed to honor our mom and dad? Like is Jesus like flipping this? What's he saying, right? Here's what he's doing He's trying to get our attention. He's emphasizing the singular reality of what it means to be a disciple. And here's what he wants us to kind of wake up to, right? He's saying that our love for him must be so complete, so total, so supreme that every other love, even the one that Yahweh instructs, like honoring your parents, loving your parents, that compared to our love for him, everything else would seem like hate, right? He's saying, like, let me solidify this in your heart. How much you love me might make it look like you don't even love these other things. That is how much I demand of your allegiance and exclusive worship of me. And that sounds weird, I get it, right? It's like Jesus is magnifying the first commandment, He's saying, listen, this is the most important thing to pay attention. To, to worship Yahweh means total allegiance. Total allegiance means only Yahweh gets all of us. And of course, he deserves it. Next thing is this. We worship Yahweh by rejecting the rivals. right? And now, there's huge air quotes around when I say rivals, right? Because the next logical step towards our allegiance of Yahweh would be kind of from more of this like negative angle, like the, the commandment is no other gods, which is exclusive worship of Yahweh means that we have to say no. It means that we have to reject any thing that would rival him. Now does Yahweh have any rivals? No, he proved it in the story to the people, right? Anyone that could have been held up and propped up as a rival, these Egyptian gods, including Pharaoh, he showed his sovereignty over, right? And so we have to understand that, like, of course, that's not what we're talking about. It's not like any other God could stand against Yahweh because Yahweh doesn't have any rivals. He doesn't ha- share his platform with anyone. He's he's not one among many. He is the one true God. So, so when we talk about rivals when it comes to God, I'm not talking about rivals for our worship because because that's a thing, right? Yahweh is holy and above every other so-called God of this world, and we can see that in the story. That's what he's accomplishing here to his people, but the gods of this world, they do compete for our attention, and they will get our attention unless we consciously like reject and fight them off and see and put them up against God and see how they fall every time. Like, Man, it's so much harder for us than it should be, right? Because of how these other gods can be so attractive, they're intoxicating, they're addictive at times. And listen, like we're not talking about, this is important, we're not talking about gods from like other world religions. Gods with names and unique forms of worship. Like we don't choose worship of those gods because we don't feel any pressure, from them like they don't have any pull in our life like like very few of us have come to like a fork in the road moment where we had to choose between Baal or Yahweh right but for the people that's a choice like that's not our situation so here's the thing the Hebrew word for God you hear hear it in the in the word like Elohim right is El and it means power Right? So you shall have no other gods before me. It's not just talking about like false gods from other world religions with names and temples. It's about every kind of god or power that tries to steal your allegiance from Yahweh, right? So if you were like, hey, I'm cool, I've never worshiped the ancient Mesopotamian god Dagon, that's not what we're talking about, right? Because of course you haven't. But where has A godlike power like entrenched itself into your heart and pulled you away from worshiping yahweh what tries to rob your allegiance to yahweh whatever it is that is a rival god or power and yahweh would have us reject it number four we worship yahweh by refusing any worldly accommodation so listen like i get that that kind of sounds close to like the other one, right? But we're going to see how this, because this is where we bring in the second part of these instructions, right? So remember the first part is about who we worship. The second commandment is about the how of worship. Like how would Yahweh have his people worship him? So then look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. So that in that second instruction, it's not just about worshiping other gods, right? That's not what he's propping up here. It's about confronting any practice of worship, right? Any practice of worshiping Yahweh in the way that these other gods are worshiped. So again, God is forming a people to be a distinct and set apart people for himself, then to go out and live out his mission to be a blessing. But he said, but in that that desire to say, have no gods, only exclusively worship me. What I also need to like pull out of you is the way that you know how to worship these other gods. Don't worship me in that way. and and so all of the neighbors of israel like they worship their gods mainly primarily through like carved images statues that's why kind of that specific listing right and then the second instruction says that that's not how it's going to work with yahweh the second commandment then forbids us from bowing down and serving any image of a creature whether from heaven or earth or sea like none of that we don't worship that we don't duplicate that um, but we also, for, and we're going to see how this works out, like for this specific time, he's also forbidding them of making any images of himself, right? So it begs this question, right? How is not bowing down to any image any different from not worshiping other gods? It kind of sounds like it's the same thing, right? right. Like why is this? A second instruction here because it's kind of the same thing. If you're not, if you don't have any other gods before God, you're certainly not going to bow down and and make any images. So it's similar, but here's the deal: there's a story in Exodus. We know the story. There's so much nuance on it. Exodus 32. So it's while mountain is or Moses is up on the mountain, not mountain on the Moses. Well, Moses is on the mountain, right? And he's receiving the law. And he's up there for a long time. He just says he stays way longer than what the people expected or what they wanted. So they're down there like, this is our leader. Where is this guy? He's up on this mountain. There's thunder and lightning. Crazy things are going on there. And they start to kind of go, but what are we supposed to be doing right now? Like he's up there having this mountaintop experience with this God that we just met and we're down here. And so they start to become a little unsettled. They're like, hey, we either want in on this or we don't know what to do. So they go to this guy, Aaron, and they're like, hey, Aaron, can you help us there? So that's where we get to the story, thirty-two-one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So they're like, we don't know what he's doing up there. We're getting restless. We need something to do. We need something to worship make something for So Aaron gives the people exactly what they want. He collects all the gold in the camp, and he fashions this golden calf, right? And all the people look at this thing, and they say, these are your gods. Like, to all the people of Israel, these are now your gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron builds an altar, and he says to the people, hey, tomorrow we're going to feast, which means, at least for Aaron, the golden calf in his mind was not a departure from Yahweh, and this is important, right? But it was a man-made method to reach Yahweh. So he makes this golden calf. He's like, man, we don't know what this Yahweh looks like. We need something to worship because that's how we've always worshipped. So this will get us closer to Yahweh, not as a departure from what God's calling them to do. And so basically, like the golden calf becomes, in some ways, another babble, right? It's another attempt for people, through their efforts, to get closer to God. And Aaron is trying to make it about Yahweh, but it's not, right? The people could, could not see Yahweh. It says that he sh- he's there and they hear him, but he's, but he's formless, right? And so, so Aaron is trying to make Yahweh for them more accommodating. Like, let's get to Yahweh through this golden calf. Why a calf? Why not an eagle, right? Why not wolves? Wolves are like way more intimidating. Why a calf? Well, there's this thing back in Egypt... The most important animal image was that of a calf. The image of a calf represented this Egyptian god, Ptah. And Israel would have known this. They would have been exposed to this. Some may have been drawn into the worship of this. So here's what's going on. Israel had seen Egypt worship their gods with this calf image, and they say... Well, let's get one of those. It worked for them. And they're they're not listening to or they're not worshiping Yahweh in that moment. They're just trying to fit in and be accommodating to what they had been exposed to. And, And this should be odd to us, right? It should not make sense to us despite the pattern repeating itself over and over again throughout scripture. And even today, for some reason, we still assume that we can be lovers and worshipers of Yahweh and still do the same things as those that stand opposed to Yahweh, right? We can worship Yahweh in the same way that those that stand opposed to Yahweh worship him. That's what's happening in this story. And God would would, would like drag that out of their hearts because obedience then to the second instruction means that we refuse to worship Yahweh in the world in the way that the world would worship, Right? So he's calling his people out to say, like, I need you to worship me distinctly, set apart, different from how any of these other false gods that could come between us would be worshipped. Right? We're not—we're called not to be like uh, imitators of the world, but we're trying to serve Yahweh. Right. And the people are trying to serve Yahweh in this moment as if he was just another Egyptian god, but he's not, and he does not tolerate it, right? The implications to the story you can read, it does not turn out well for the people. So we see Yahweh here as a god that demands that allegiance. Next thing is this, we worship Yahweh by embracing his true image. So let me be clear about this, like, it gets confusing. The forbidding of images right it doesn't mean and you can see how this splits you can see how it splits in our churches like some churches you walk into nothing you'll see no crosses you'll see no images right so this is how this plays out for us some churches have icons and and so like we're missing the mark here right in in what this cuz we we're dislocating it from once again a very specific people so in the story right forbidding of images does not mean that Yahweh cannot be image it just means We cannot use the wrong image first and foremost. So now in Exodus 20, right, in that moment, and this is the other important thing, for them in their moment, where they're at in redemptive history, or history, excuse me, it means that Israel is to have no images at all. So it gets confusing for us. Some of us would hold this up and say you cannot have any imagery in your churches, but we need to understand this command and its implications right now is for them specifically. He's saying none. When Yahweh speaks to Moses and the people at Sinai, he, he, he has no form, right? He's saying, I'm showing up and you can't touch me, you can't see me right? I'm a voice speaking to a people. And then Moses actually highlights that in Deuteronomy 4. He highlights Yahweh's formlessness, right? And, and he, knew it's, he knew it's going to be a problem for Israel because they're so used to seeing gods show up in these forms. And so Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 15 and 16, he says this, "...therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb," or Sinai, same place, Out of the midst of the fire. So he's saying, hey, remember that moment. Remember that you saw, like you saw thunder and lightning, but you didn't see any image of a God. He was formless. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So just because God was formless, still don't make something that forms him. Does that make sense? So he repeats the second command. Moses knew that the second instruction here would be a challenge for the people because, just like the nations around them, they wanted a God that they could see and touch and interact with. That was so formed in them as a people. And remember, God is ripping the vestiges of Israel or Egypt and empire out of them. So they wanted a God so badly to be like the gods that they that they saw before that they were willing to fabricate that God if they if they if they couldn't see God like they wanted, well, then they would carve an image of Him. And, and not only is that breaking God's instructions, this this man-made seizing of something like out of place, right? We see that all the time in the story. It's when 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 humans, when image bearers grab for something, out of place, right? Like we see that in the story of Genesis. I, I think it's like a, actually a pretty fitting definition of sin. The seizing of a legitimate good at times or in ways that God has forbidden. So think about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, that story. That's a, that's a sinful act. Like they begin to seize something that God has promised, but they seize it from him in his timing. And that's what's happening here in the story for the people, right? When they make the calf, like God's saying, like at this time, nothing. Right? Listen, it's it's not evil or sinful that Israel wanted to see and touch Yahweh, right? It's that they demanded that of Yahweh at a time when Yahweh said no. And then they took it into their own hands and they began to make these images. And God's saying, like, no, now is not the time. So when when their demand was not met, what do they do? They devise their own solution, they carve an image for themselves. And instead of trusting in Yahweh's plan, which would mean later that he indeed would give them this image. His plan was always to give his people an image. And the people were so hungry for it that they snatched it out of God's timing. Because as redemptive history begins to unfold, God would send his Messiah, Jesus. And he is the true image of God. Like you look through the scriptures, you read Paul in Colossians 1.15. God's plan was to always give his people an image to reveal himself, to make himself known once again. And he does that in the person of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The author of Hebrew says it this way in, in 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even Jesus himself says, I am the image that Yahweh planned to give to his people. Whoever has seen me, John 14, 9, has seen the Father. So so Yahweh, who, who hides himself at Sinai, the God who had no form, who Israel could not touch or see, has now revealed himself in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And John, look at what John says throughout his gospel says we've seen this we've we've seen him with our own eyes we've touched him with our own hands we've heard the words that he's spoken to us and we believe that Jesus is God manifest before us as human and as man and he is representing to us he is imaging to us who Yahweh is So obedience then to this second instruction, it means that we reject all false man-made images and we embrace the one true image who is Jesus, the living, breathing, real image of God. Although we have not seen him yet, Jesus means that God has a face and one day we will see him. And until that day, here's what we get to do. Every time that we gather as a people, we get to go to the table. And we get to remember him at the table. We get to declare Yahweh, who has made himself known, who made himself seeable and touchable, also made himself breakable. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did on that cross for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus dies in our place for our sins, which means he died for all the ways that we neglect these instructions, all the ways that we dismiss these instructions, all the way that we as a people sinfully, like, reject these instructions. Jesus would go to a cross for that, and then on that third day, he would raise from the dead so that whoever believes in him will be forgiven, redeemed, and saved, and will welcomed to be a people who would then worship only Yahweh in the way of Yahweh. Going to the table is one of those unique ways that we worship Yahweh. It means that we go to the table, we, we bow before King Jesus alone. It's that simple. So the good news of the gospel is this, is that Jesus is the image of God. He's died for you, and he invites us once again into relationship. And as we go to the table this morning, we go to the table because we trust in Jesus. We go to the table because we worship Jesus alone, and Jesus invites us to eat and drink. So that's the invitation this morning. Come to the table, be a family, worship King Jesus. Let me pray, and let's respond. Father, we thank you